I'm Mark Carroll, and welcome to episode 109 of Carol Pop, sponsored by Revolution Brewing. Our guest this week is Dave Wakeling, chief singer-songwriter for The English Beat, or if you live in England, The Beat. The Beat was one of the key bands of the British ska-punk revival of the late 70s and early 80s, an interracial, socially conscious group formed in Birmingham and fronted by Wakeling and Ranking Roger, who did the toasting while Wakeling sang. The band's first single was a souped-up cover of Smokey Robinson and the Miracles' Tears of a Clown. In 1980s, I Just Can't Stop It is one of the era's great debut albums. It jumps out of the gate with the bass-driven Mirror in the Bathroom and includes other undeniable tracks such as Hands Off, She's Mine, Twist and Crawl, Best Friend, and Stand Down, Margaret. Rhino is releasing a 2LP expanded edition of I Just Can't Stop It for this year's Record Store Day, Black Friday. single Too Nice to Talk To and second album, 1981's Why Happen, expanded the band's musical palette to showcase more African and Latin rhythms. The third album, Special Beat Service from 1982, won the beat new fans via the singles Save It For Later and I Confess. But just as the beat was reaching its biggest audiences, it called it quits. Wakeling breaks down the breakup factors. Wakeling and Rankin Roger formed a new group, General Public, and scored a hit with Tenderness off the 1984 debut album, All the Rage. Was Tenderness originally supposed to be a beat song? Meanwhile, beat guitarists Andy Cox and bassist David Steele formed their own group, Fine Young Cannibals, with singer Roland Gift. Did Wakeling feel a sense of competition between General Public and his former bandmates band? To whom does he compare Gift's singing? And how did he react to Fine Young Cannibals scoring two U.S. number one singles, She Drives Me Crazy and Good Thing? Spoiler alert, not well. General Public took a break and later regrouped to record a hit cover of the staple singer's I'll Take You There for a movie soundtrack. The story behind that one and the reggae song on which I'll Take You There was based in the first place is fascinating. Eventually, Wakeling, who settled in California, and Rankin Roger, who remained in England, were leading their own versions of the beat on either side of the Atlantic. Was that a friendly or competitive situation, or both? Wakeling tells of their relationship up to Roger's death from cancer in 2019. Wakeling's English beat is touring the U.S. right now, and he talks about what he gets from performing that music. He also has a great memory for detail and a keen sense of humor as he looks back on the band's beginnings. What was their relationship with the other British ska bands of the time, such as The Specials and Madness? What was his reaction when The Specials released their breakthrough debut album before The Beat released theirs? Wakeling reveals much about The Beat's creative process as well, with the songwriting credits shared by all, no matter how much he wrote. Not only does he reflect, so to speak, on the origins of Mirror in the Bathroom, but he also explains bassist David Steele's idiosyncratic approach to that song and Twist and Crawl. Dave Wakeling knows how to get your feet and your mind moving. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Dave Wakeling. You've been living in California for so long and playing with the English beat in the in the States for so long. Do you think of the band's name now as the English beat or the beat? Californian beat. <laughs> the beat, I always have thought of it as the beat, really. Uh, although 
I don't mind the name the English Beat. It's uh, it's better than the Beat UK or the Beat GB huh. that they wanted, or the British Beat, as they called us in Australia. We never went on purpose because of that. The Beat was sort of at the forefront of this, you know, wave of ska that uh, you know came out of that, you know, sort of the the punk and ska you know movement in in britain where did that all come from and how did you get wrapped up with that well during punk there was quite a lot of reggae bands playing uh almost as though it was the the equivalent of the chill out room at a rave you'd have like quite a few punk bands and then you'd have a reggae band at some point um and then probably a few more couple more punk bands and there was an affinity uh through the lyrics uh i think about social justice mainly and so you'd have some white teenagers complaining about the government then you'd have some rasters complain about the government and then you'd have some more white teenagers complain about the government afterwards and uh and so there was quite a bond there in similar ways as well no punks no rasters you would see nightclubs you know so they were both kind of outcasts in a way we ran parties at our house uh, with two djs in opposite corners of the same room uh, one playing punk and one playing reggae uh, mainly reggae 12 inch dubs you know uh, dub slates as they were called and uh, if you had all punk for about 45 minutes the room would go nuts but then it'd get empty and if you had all reggae in the room for half an hour or so the dance floor would start to empty out a little bit and there'd be people leaning against the walls nodding which we called dancing on the inside Mm. and uh, but if you mixed it up and you had one of these two of that one of that two of the other the dance floor stayed absolutely packed all night the whole party and there was something about the combination of the punk and the reggae and uh, at one of those parties um having a breather sitting on the floor leaning against the wall andy cox the guitarist said yes but what if you could get the elements of both djs into the same three minute pop song what would you have then right and it, that was the starting point, really. The ding. So a, a syncopated punk. We all had our own vision of it. Mine initially was um, the Velvet Underground jamming with Toots and the Maytels. Wow. So I think, still think would sound glorious. Um, so it had uh, the urban angst of the Velvet Underground. Uh, we were living in what turned out to be post-industrial Britain and uh, lots of unemployment, that sort of thing. That music, uh, with the addition of the reggae, uh, which also brought with it a sense of uh, that life was wonderful, even if it was tough. Sometimes you got the feeling with reggae, with good, good songs, that it was music, instead of dinner, not music for after dinner. There was a sort of nobility about it. And so that headed 
into the mix as well, which, which I thought helped it. Um, and then at the same time, we also, we wanted to come across as the monkeys, uh, but with John Lennon secretly writing the lyrics. Ha, okay. So, so that was the two. So the, the monkeys part was the, the catchiness of it? Exactly. Irresist it wasn't that you all lived in the same apartment or something? No, no, it was the irresistibility of it. So it had to be irresistible dance music for people who couldn't dance. It was that good. And, um, but with a, a hidden barb in the lure. When, when you were growing up and learning to play guitar, what kind of music were you listening to at that point and trying to sound like? Well, as an early teenager, uh, Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin were the two local bands mm. who were starting to do well. So black country rock, heavy rock was important. I had a fuzz box at one point. But I liked, I liked the Rolling Stones songbook. I learned a lot of Rolling Stones songs. I liked Van Morrison. I learned quite a lot of those. And I liked to do impersonations of um, the different singers, which I was quite good at, quite a good mimic. But I learned to play the guitar upside down by accident. I didn't know. My dad gave me a guitar and none of us knew how to play it. I figured it the difficult bit was with your right hand. It seemed to have to have a lot of dexterity to do the chords. So I thought that must be the hand you played the neck. And the left hand strumming part, that that seemed kind of easy. So I thought that was for the strumming. Right. There's and, some uh, sort of intuitive sense to that, that you think if yeah. you're right-handed, you got to do more work with your right hand. Yeah. And then I held the guitar that way. It had no scratch plate, so it looked right either way and the lowest string at the bottom boom and the highest string at the top ding yeah that's gotta be it and that put me off for about three years trying to figure it out and i couldn't figure it out and in the end i tuned up uh the guitar strings until it made a chord that sounded nice to me wow and i just started making up my own chords on top of that but it turned out I'd found Keith Richards tuning from the Rolling Stones. Well, a slightly different version, GGD, GBD, where he would take off the bottom string sometimes or tune it down to a low D, which I didn't do. Um, but you could play all the Rolling, well, most of the Rolling Stones songs, at least Keith Richards' part. Right. Uh, and uh, so that helped me along. The way, and then I tried to play along with a John Martin record, and I got close with that as well. It turned out it was Dad Gad he was playing, and I got Dad Ard. The G was left tuned up to an A, and that ended up becoming the tuning for Save It for Later and Click Click, um, which I didn't realize it was a made up tuning. Uh, and then many years later, on a Saturday morning, Pete Townsend. And Dave Gilmore phoned me up at home, and I thought it was a joke. And it turned out they were playing Save It For Later for a benefit record, and they didn't know the tuning, couldn't work out the tune. So I had to tell them the difference between Dad Gad and Dad Ard. Oh, that's so funny. I remember them doing that song, too. I remember yeah, the cover. Did it great, didn't they? That's what it looks like when somebody can play the guitar, plays it. 
It was like 11 frets span on it. Boom, boom, boom. So did playing it upside down for three years basically, you know, influence the way you played for the next, you know, several decades or did that? I think it did a little bit. Yes. I think it did because I'm not really left-handed. I don't do anything else left-handed. Although my mom, my mom was left-handed and uh, half my children are left-handed. And when my mom saw me playing the guitar that way around, she said, Oh, so they didn't beat the left hand out of me completely then. Being at a Catholic school in the 30s, 20s, whenever, uh, they had um, strapped her hand and hit it with rulers to stop her using her left hand, so she had to learn, because it's sinistra, isn't it? Yeah. So she thought it had been passed on to me that way. Uh, but I still I don't do anything really left-handed. Uh, well, I'm, I'm ambiguous, ambidextrous <laughs> something. There you go. You're ambiguous and ambidextrous. And, and ambivalent, too. Yes. <laughs> well, that's because of all the yoga, I've always been ambivalent. There you go. The Black Sabbath Led Zeppelin thing is interesting because they're so, they're heavy and you are so light on your feet. Like there's something so kind of just sort of zipping through the air the way, you know, your plane goes and the way the music goes for that. So it's sort of a, to me at least, it's like a 180 from there. Yeah. Well, we all we all heard Led Zeppelin's reggae song, didn't we? Oh, right. Oh, Oh, oh no, Jamaica! Uh, but even that is really like has those that big John Bonham beat on it. <laughs> I mean, it's a huge sounding song. <laughs> it buries it, doesn't it? Uh, well, I, I, I suppose it must be down to the drumming more than anything else, isn't it? Uh, from Everett's drumming, uh, and Everett had been in quite a lot of soul groups before, not just reggae bands. So he came from a a soul and reggae background and came from St. Kitts, so not exactly the same, uh, a slightly different feel and handle on things to a Jamaican. And so he had a very lyrical, and it was quite a lot, powerful, but quite a light step on it. Right. Yeah, and, you know, and, and the bass, I mean, something like Mirror in the Bathroom is very propulsive, um, and, and you know, the guitars, again, are, are, you know, sort of chiming around. They're not, like, big power chords or anything like that. Yeah, you know, no guitar song, solos either, huh? Yeah. And I don't think there's a guitar solo on the beat record apart from Walk Away, which is just me, a one finger wonder thing. Like the searchers. Uh, so it, couldn't, it doesn't really count as a guitar solo. But apart from that, I don't think me and Andy ever did any. He did a, a couple of chord frenzy, velvet underground sort of breakdowns, but nobody ever did any shredding. On the what, was, what was the way that you and Andy related to each other as guitar players? Like, would you just come up with your own parts and they just sounded good together? Or was there like, okay, I'm going to do this sort of thing and you're going to do that sort of thing? Most often, uh, I'd be playing the guitar and singing and he would join in with something. And, and I didn't realize how cleverly it had been put together, really, or his thought process before he got to that point, because... It just sounded right. You go, oh, yeah, that's good. That works. That fits. That's fine. But it did something both to my guitar part and to the vocal melody. It laced around both of them. So once Andy's guitar started on Best Friend, it it fits around my guitar and vocal and just held them there. So uh, quite cleverly done, really. Those songs are credited to the whole band. You know, I certainly get the impression that your key songwriter 
you know, in those in the band and of those songs. What was the process on how, you know, one of those songs, whether it's Mirror in the Bathroom or Best Friend, would go from sort of something someone bringing in the initial idea to it getting fleshed out into the recorded version we hear? Yeah, there were different ways songs made it to getting onto a record. Uh, quite a lot of them I started on the acoustic guitar. Andy came up with an accompaniment, and some of them for the first record they were already had been written by the time we met David Steele, who added his bass. Um, other songs like Twist and Crawl, Mirror in the Bathroom, were bass lines that David Steele had, and we had to try and fit around those. And it was quite challenging. It turned out that he played everything or thought of everything in two two time. One two 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 rather than one two three four one two three four takes the same amount of time, but as you said, I think propulsion, but it has the same amount of insistence. Right. Uh, twice yeah. as much one two one two one twist and crawl, twist and crawl, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And uh in the bathroom, yeah. The same uh, I didn't know it was that. We just thought he was odd, you know, <laughs> uh, but interesting, special. Uh, and then, but when we were playing a concert in Boston, a guy came up to me and said, "Do you know why your bass player dances so oddly?" And I said, "Because he's odd." <laughs> he said, well, "Maybe." He said, "But he, he hears everything in two-two time." And he reacts to everything in 2-2 two, two time, the whole show, even when he's playing in 4-4. Four, four. And he introduced himself, and he was the, the double bass player from the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra. I was the guy making this comment. Yeah, slumming it for the night. So I was like, well, you must know, I suppose. <laughs> you do it for a living, the real thing. Um, and you do hear that, and when I have new players in coming into the band and we have to rehearse that one, I tell them, think of it in two, two time, or one, two, 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 one, two. So it's quite insistent, it's quite compulsive, uh, but it's also quite light on its feet. Right. Did you tell David this observation that this Boston guy told you? Yes, I don't I don't know if he was that impressed, really. Uh, he was yeah, his own Whatever. Man. Completely, yeah, totally, whatever. <laughs> so, so with those songs, you'd, you'd start with the bass, and, and are you, like, developing it as a group? Are you going back and writing lyrics for it? Like, how's that? That's what happened with Mirror in the Bathroom. We'd come up, up with this tune, and then, sort of unrelated to it, I'd had a bit of a, a hard night on the Guinness one night and had to go to work the next day on a construction site that was snowing. And I went to work on a motorbike, so it wasn't the greatest of ideas. And I realised my clothes were still wet. So I hung them up in the bathroom and turned the shower on, hoping it would steam them a bit, it would be a bit better to put on. And started the faucet and had a shave and was talking to myself and came up with the door is locked, just you and me, and a few different bits and bobs. And I got on the motorbike eventually and the poem started to form up. And by the time I got to work, I thought, oh, I bet that fits David's new song, doesn't it? Which I was hoping would be the case because I hadn't found it that easy to write to. It was quite different, this two-twoing business. Um, I wasn't sure quite what to do with it. So but I carried on doing the poem at work 
I used to take these jobs. They were called neck down jobs. So you clock on, switch off, and you just have to do physical labor of some sort. We didn't have to be there or invest <laughs> any great interest. Then clock off and you could switch back on again. And they were called neck down jobs. And, uh, and so I did that and drove home and then had a listen on the cassette and not exactly, but really close, really close. It didn't take much uh, extending of the poem, a pronoun here and a comma there. And, and I started to make it fit. And then the rest of it was easy to write once I'd got the scansion of uh, how the lyrics would uh, fit over it. And I took it in to a rehearsal and I said, I've got some words for David's new tune. Oh, good, they said. I said, the only thing is it's a bit embarrassing. I said, it's called Mirror in the Bathroom. And they're like, what? I said, I know, what a stupid title for a song. I said, it's like chairs in the living room. Sink is in the kitchen, is <laughs> in the bathroom. I said, but anyway, that's what it's called. And I showed them the lyrics, and they said, "Oh no, that's all right." I think I think you can get away with that. And so we tried. That's funny, and you know, and I've never really sort of thought about like, well, of course it's in the bathroom as opposed to mirror in the you know kitchen or something. But it's such a cool song, and it has such a great point of view to it that it never sort of I, I never questioned it at all i'm just like it's just it's mirror in the bathroom it's that song that i yeah. think is really awesome that's mirror in the bathroom by the time we got to new york a year later to play our first concert everybody thought it was about cocaine anyway <laughs> i like that one dave here's my card <laughs> i did not i did not have that interpretation and i, I do read stuff nor did, stuff. Nor did we we didn't have the money <laughs> we'd read about it <laughs> as that song came together is that one where you got to the end of it and you thought oh like this is really like something like this is going to be sort of one of our standout songs i'll be playing this 40 that. years later it did have that something about it although it was hard to construct in the beginning um everett the drummer started to get frustrated and he said why don't we all learn a song that we already know, everybody knows, and we could play that one next Tuesday and get our groove up together, and then we could play one of your weird ones like that mirror song. <laughs> it's like, oh, okay. And it took us ages to find a song we all knew, and it turned out it was Tears of a Clown. Right, your first single. Yes, so we learned that one, and we would play Tears of a Clown, Mirror in the Bathroom, Tears of a Clown, Twist and Crawl, Tears of a Clown, Big Shot, Tears of a Clown, Two Swords, Tears of a Clown, Best Friend, Tears of a Clown, Click, Click, which was about all we'd got. And um, because of that, we ended up being able to play Tears of a Clown a bit better than most of the <laughs> others after a few weeks. And so that one always went down well. As soon as we had eight songs we could do, we started doing shows and... Um, Tears of a Clown was the one that went down, didn't matter, young, old, white, black, punk, rasters, working men's club, it didn't matter. Tears of a Clown always went down well. Had that been one of your favourite songs already? Well, I'd always liked it, and I'd liked singing along to it. If you're a singer, and especially if you're younger and you've got a higher voice, singing along to, with Smokey Robinson is a wonderful way to spend the afternoon. Right. Uh, so Tears of a Cloud and Tracks of My Tears were lovely songs to sing along. And um, 
just a few years ago, well, I say a few years, it's a decade ago now, probably, I, I went to a Grammy party and uh, Christopher Cross asked me if I'd ever met Smokey. And I said, no, I haven't. I'd love to. And it turned out he knew him and he introduced me. And I said to him that I loved singing along with his records when I was a kid and that um, I thought he had the voice of an angel and that if I could sing along like him, perhaps I could be an angel too. Mm. Well, he gave me the biggest hug that Christopher Cross basically had to prize him off of me <laughs> after a few minutes. So it turned out we were very fond of each other. And had he heard uh, your version of Tears of a Clown? He had indeed, yes. Yeah. Uh, at the time, well, we fell for it, so we were absolutely thrilled. When we did our first Top of the Pops, one of the uh, uniformed uh, security for the sort of British Legion uniforms uh, came with a, a tel telegram for the beat, and it was in a card, and it was a proper real telegram, you know, a strip of paper with a, a message typed on it. And um, congratulations on your success. All the very best, Smokey Robinson. Wow. We could not believe We went on stage welling with tears. We were so happy, you know. And it wasn't until about three years ago that I found out from somebody that, that it was the guy in the publisher's office, Joe Vett Music in London, had sent it because we'd made him a quarter of a million dollars. <laughs> <laughs> Smokey Robinson had, had nothing to do with this at all. It wasn't even in the country. But anyway, yeah, that's funny. Yeah, he, but he, yeah. but he, he liked your version anyway, and that's the, and you got yeah. to get hugged by Smokey Robinson. So yeah, you know, we didn't get to sing together, but it's not over yet. Was there? You go. You should. Um, was it understood? You know, in terms of roles of the band, that you were going to be the chief lyricist, that, you know, you were going to be maybe the melody guy, or what was the dynamic? And was it always, you know, sort of understood what role everyone played, or did that kind of change over time? Changed a little bit, but it kind of continued on the way it had started. Like I'd shown up with some acoustic songs with lyrics, with guitar accompaniment from Andy. And so that carried on from the first album into the second and the third. Uh, but then as things progressed, David Steele came up with original bass lines as the start of tunes more often. And then we would scramble. Most often I would end up writing the lyrics. But we had an interesting thing. Uh, when we went on tour, I got these little notebooks and numbered them once through eight and then passed them out to the band uh, and said, just write any comments you have, write anything, anything you think or anything you think to yourself, you think, no, well, that's clever, just write it down. And if you see anything anybody else has written that strikes you at all, write what you think about it underneath that. And every three or four days, usually twice a week, we would swap books and move them down the line. And at the end of the tour, I collected the books up and they were a fabulous uh, dictionary of imagery hmm. and uh, suggestions. And because we'd just been through the same or similar experience for the last eight weeks on a tour bus, uh, quite a lot of the lyrics were coming from a similar perspective. 
And so I would start writing a song and then whenever I got stuck or bored or something, uh, I'd look through the, the notebooks and see what would inspire me. And it turned out then, especially on the third album, there were quite a lot of lyrics from everybody on uh, that record. Um, in particular, Soul Salvation, the whole of the second verse was written by the drummer, mm. who abs- Everett, who absolutely insisted he couldn't write a song. I could never write a song. But he got going with the little bits of poetry and that, and what he wrote just happened to fit the scan of uh, Soul Salvation, and uh, he ended up writing, I think, the entire second verse were all but a couple of lines. And so we managed to integrate everybody's ideas that way a bit. Uh, but then again, it was looking back on this, it was a bit selfish. It was still my vision of it. I still got to be Brian Geising. Right, put all your ideas here and I'll sort them out. <laughs> and was everyone fine with that? Uh, yes. Yes, it is. I think in the main part, people liked the lyrics, thought they were clever and melodic. So they were happy with that. Uh, David Steele wrote some good lyrics. They tended to be quite pointed, uh, double uh, couplets. Uh, so there's a few of those in the songs. And sometimes I'd wince as I would sing it by because, you know, like emotions so guarded, my heart is retarded <laughs> in too nice to talk to, which was even a little bit dodgy to say in 1980. Right. Even if it was about a heart, not a person, you know. Uh, but uh, now, I think, well, you probably you couldn't put that in a song, could you? My heart is retarded. Oh, my God, I can't believe you said that. You know? Right. I mean, it's still an image, but it's just the word that doesn't, you know, it's not, you're not using it, you know, you're not like insulting the heart, but it's your own heart at least. But, um, but yeah, just, just cause people don't use the words now. Um, I think but, it's a word probably people would steer clear of in songwriting. <laughs> Too nice to talk to is an interesting one because you guys have this reputation as this, you know, ska punk, yeah band but that one that one really it doesn't sound like jamaican it sounds i mean it could be sort of island but it also has sort of an african feel to it were you sort of busting out of that sky thing right from the start would you say well after the first album we had started listening to a lot of high life records because we'd found a record store in london uh, that sold nigerian records that we just thought were great uh, Ebenezer Obey was one of them. Um, but I think David Steele was listening to Shake Sheik at the time. That button, 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 Sounds like Sheik to me. Um, and funnily enough, it's, uh, it shows up that, that same kind of uh, Reef shows up in um, Fine Young Cannibals in uh, Johnny, we miss you. Won't you come on? Me and uh, Roland Gift had a laugh about that this summer at some festivals. <laughs> We're both still singing to David's bass lines 40 years later. Right. 
while you guys were coming up as the beat, you also had, you know, the specials and all the two-tone bands. You had the selector, you had madness. Did you feel like there was a community around these bands? Were you guys friends? Were you rivals? What was the relationship there? More friends than rivals. Uh, although we'd been at a rehearsal and had gone to Andy's flat and was sitting chilling. And David Steele came in with a melody maker open to the middle page spread, threw it down on the floor dramatically and said, it's too late, somebody else has done it. And they're from Coventry. Hmm. Knowing that as we, the rest of us from Birmingham, that would hurt a lot. There's a huge rivalry between Birmingham and Coventry. I don't know why. Because um, they're from Coventry. I don't know. But... Uh, it, and it was about the specials. And we were really disappointed, upset. We we thought about not carrying on because we thought we'd had a good idea and now it's going to seem really corny. Oh, yeah, we're doing that as well. It's like, oh, God. Um, back to the drawing board. Let's do um, Polka with Captain Beefheart or something. I don't know. <laughs> but on balance, after a long talk, we thought... Well, you know what groups are like. This other group, the specials, they might not turn into that much after all. We, we should still carry on and just see if we can do anything, even though it is probably doomed. And so we, we carried on on that light. Uh, but then when we, Jerry Damage came to one of our shows and told us about Two Tone and asked us, would we like to make a single and would we like to open two or three shows for the selector outside of Birmingham? in London, Blackpool, and and perhaps one other. And we said yes to that as well. And that was it then. That was the start of the whirlwind. And um, we made a, a single, maybe August 1979, and it came out in October, and it was in the top ten Christmas week. We were on the Christmas Top of the Pops, and half of our friends loved us for it, and the other half hated us. <laughs> was that Tears of a Clown? And that was Tears of a Clown, which was odd because Jerry had wanted Mirror in the Bathroom, and we had no problem with that, except then Chrysalis Records said, oh, well, we'd own the rights to that for five years. You couldn't have it on another record. We said, well, it's our best song, and we haven't even been asked to do an, al an album yet, but if we are... We want our best song on the album, wouldn't we? Oh, yeah, you're not going to be able to, though, lads. So we said, well, you can have Tears of a Clown, then. And you can argue with Smokey Robinson about whose bloody song it is. And uh, it went on for a while, and they were adamant, but we were equally adamant, and we said, no, if we can have it on our next record, then that's fine, no problem. But they wouldn't have it. So as luck would have it, they just had three hits in a row on two-tone and it was September and the charts in England are very geared towards the Christmas holidays. Um, things start closing down in November and the set list stays the same on the BBC or used to most of the way through November and December, the holiday set list. So everything gears towards that. And so by happenstance, I think Tears of a Clown was a much better bet because it got in as a dance party song for Christmas parties. 
whereas mirroring the bathroom, uh, a 2-2 escapade into mental illness. It's hardly got that <laughs> festive ring, but it suited uh, the weather perfectly when it came out in the springtime. You know, it's raining, cold, it's been no sun for seven months. Here we go, mirror in the bathroom. Perfect mood. <laughs> so was Jerry Dammers trying to get your debut album, I Just Can't Stop It, on two-tone as well then? Well, he didn't uh, want to do an album on two-tone. Chrysalis were interested, but they were a little bit um, little bit overconfident, it seemed, as though they, they just thought they were eating. How would anybody else ever want to go with anybody else? Which seemed odd, because Madness had just had a single with them and gone to stiff. Uh, but as soon as we had the single, or even before, while there was news of it, we started to get inundated with A&R guys who'd borrowed some a friend's hat <laughs> in order to come to the concert. <laughs> and you can tell people who don't wear hats that are suddenly wearing one. It takes a minute to get used to carrying a hat, doesn't it? But anyway, we were inundated with offers, and we went with Arista because they were willing to give us more or less a carbon copy of the deal that the specials had got at Chrysalis. Uh, Chrysalis weren't willing to offer us that deal, but Arista were. And so um, we bought ourselves a little bit of uh, extra musical freedom by having our own label, Go Feet, and making Arista talk to Go Feet records about artistic matters and then we'd tell GoFeet Records to call them back and tell them no. <laughs> what did you think of those other, the self-titled specials album, One Step Beyond, the first Madness record, you know, The Selector? Were you listening to these bands sort of critically or were you listening to them like, oh, you know, this is kind of just nice music to listen to or not? I like the specials. I like the lyrics. I like Roddy's songs particularly. Um, but it did seem a bit of a guy's band like the audience was very male and a lot of punching in the air instead of dancing. And so it seemed a bit overtly male to me. I like Madness for their melodies and um, Mike Barson's songwriting, his instrumental writing, uh, was delicious, really. But the, the lyrics didn't cover much of a breadth of stuff. It was just more observational growing up in London than... Little uh, slices of life. That's right. It wasn't much about the, the social aspect of things. And, of course, at the time, everybody noticed, and obviously apparent now, that for a two-tone band, Madness were all white. Not them so much, but some friends and relatives around the band had somewhat of a reputation for being involved in hard right-wing youth political groups. So there was always a bit of a stigma about that. We were a bit nervous of madness to start with. But then when we met them, it turned out they were okay. And uh, I've been friendly ever since. It was interesting because it wasn't competitive or it was us versus everybody else. Uh, but what an odd situation, three or four groups suddenly thrown into the charts, touring together. I suppose we hadn't had time to uh, argue about who's the headliner. We used to swap us and the specials, the beat and the specials. We would alternate headline uh, each night and then all end up on the stage 
together at the end of the night. We took a lot of note. I don't know whether li literally or just happened that way from groups like the Undertones or the Buzzcocks who didn't dress up too much, who dressed the same way as the crowd. Uh, you could meet the Undertones or the Buzzcocks standing at the bar in the club and they would fit in. They wouldn't stand out looking like they'd got theatrical costumes or something on. So we kind of did that, I think, affected by both of those groups uh, because of their music as well as their style. So sort of of the people, by the people, for the people vibe did seem to generate in two-tone in those early years. Now, I doubt you could get all of those four groups to play a gig together because you'd never get over the argument about who has to headline. <laughs> Are you looking for a non-alcoholic alternative to beer? Revolution Brewing is now offering Super Zero, a sparkling hop water that delivers the citrusy hop flavor you'd expect from the makers of the best-selling Antihero IPA. In fact, Superhero matches Antihero's hop dosing rate as it uses two contemporary hop varieties that win out for flavor and refreshment. Not only does Super Zero contain no alcohol, but there are also no calories, carbohydrates, or sugars. It's available in six packs at stores and on RevBrew.com. At the time when you guys were starting and, and putting out these you know first albums, what were your ambitions for the beat? And were those ambitions shared by everyone in the band or did it, did people have different ideas of what they considered success? We thought about that quite a bit since we didn't really have any aims at all. We were amazed we'd got where we were and just thought we'd try and do what we could to stay there. But we didn't have any uh, particular aims. We were aimless. The sardonic sense had kind of taken over, whereas we just started to think it was funny that we were in a pop group and we managed to get on TV and say political things they weren't expecting. So we thought, part of the time I did at least, I thought I was like the, the political wing of a scar orchestra, <laughs> looking for ways to work double entendres into lyrics just, just because. And it might have been because we were aimless that we kind of ran out of steam uh, with overwork. By the third album, it was almost impossible to get a rehearsal together. Somebody had to show up late, somebody would have to leave early, or somebody couldn't do that, but they might be able to do next week. That's was that it. when you were working on the album, or was that when you were work touring for it afterwards? This between tours when we're working on new songs that would be considered for an album. So Special uh, Beat Service, the third album, it was harder to get everyone together for that one? It was. We had a rehearsal room. We started off in good order, really. We built a rehearsal room and uh, painted it nicely and had it very comfortable and cosy. And we did use it for a few weeks, but then it kind of started to drop off. And it was really a more 
widespread malaise. It wasn't the rehearsals. David Steele wanted a couple of years off, it turned out. He thought there were more buses than, no, sorry, more planes than buses nowadays, he said. And he wanted to stay home, go down the shops, buy the food for dinner, come home, cook it, go to bed, and do that for two years to so that he could write songs about the real world. Uh, whereas he was worried that we were getting sucked into the rock and roll lifestyle and that we'd end up writing songs about barreling down rock and roll boulevard and stuff like that. Did you uh, know? No. Uh, as it turned out, me and Roger had just had our first child and to that point the beat had been a, a basically socialist endeavour where everybody had got the same, so we were equal, but we were kind of equally broke. Nobody had really made it, but certainly not really enough to take two years off with a kid. And so uh, me and Roger decided to carry on and not take the two years off. And uh, general public started because of that. And tenderness was one of the issues because um, I'd got this song, Tenderness, but there was nothing you could do to get people to rehearse it. <laughs> so you were trying to get that as a, as a beat single, Tenderness? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that one, and David wanted uh, us to cover the Elvis song that they did go on to cover, Suspicious Minds. Right. He wanted us to do that one as our cover for the fourth album. Because the third album you had... I confess, save it for later. So you've gotten more, you know, notice for that. I mean, are you playing kind of big places and are, are people enjoying the larger audiences or was that sort of the, oh, yes. this, the larger audiences are a trap. We can't, you know, appeal to more people or something. We were playing to huge places, 10 or 15,000. And that was another sure sign to David that it was time to stop, that we'd been sucked into it. We toured with The Clash our punk heroes, you know, from the club days. And now they were playing these ten and 15,000 stadiums. And uh, somebody from our group, right before they would go on stage, would often try and get to ask Joe, are you going to play I'm So Bored with the USA tonight, Joe? Fuck off. <laughs> it became a bit of a tradition. Uh, but that's what it was about, I think getting sucked into the rock and roll lifestyle uh, was a fear. I don't think David ever got sucked into the rock and roll lifestyle even when they came back with Fine Young Cannibals, but I certainly would have been tempted. There are a lot of bands where the songwriting, publishing royalties become an issue. And, yes. you know, it's like, it's like something like R.E.M., they, they just shared everything, but there were four of them where the beat had eight. Um, you know, where something they like asked us about it. REM opened up for us touring and they asked us about publishing. We told them what we did with the publishing, and you two had the same conversation. And they were intrigued by it that, that, that we shared it regardless. Now, I'm told that you two and REM had a slightly more sophisticated pattern where they shared everything for the first five years of the song whilst they were actively touring that song up together on the road. But then after five years, the uh, rights reverted back to the, the original writers of the song. So it was a kind of sharing whilst they were all generating the income. But then in longevity, the, the actual writers got a bit more than they did 
for the first few years, which I thought was clever. Um, we'd split split everything equally because we'd seen such a dreadful reaction to the specials where in their first year, one or two of them suddenly found themselves to be extremely wealthy and the rest of the band, it, it, you couldn't even tell you'd had a record out really. Right. And that caused a lot of consternation, probably one of the things that split them up. So we thought it would protect us against that, but we took it a bit too far and took all the incentive out of the situation. So we did end up with some of the more clever songwriters not being bothered to write because we were getting the same wages on a Thursday, whether they did or not. Right. So it didn't affect it. It, uh, it didn't matter whether you wrote or not. And uh, with David feeling we were getting sucked into the rock quagmire, uh, that affected his writing. He didn't write as much for the third record. So really the general public record material wise is what would have been the fourth beat record. Well, some of the songs, yes, that's right. Some of them probably wouldn't have made it, but so, most of them, yeah. Like, how did you sort of, since it was a reset, it's a new band, how did you think, okay, this is what we're going to do a little bit different? Because, I mean, it does sound like a different band from the beat. Uh, there wasn't any great uh, plan on how to make it sound different. We just thought we'd still just do what we like the sound of. Um, but we, we liked the idea that, we could now get to play with local musicians who'd also just been in famous groups, you know, in the flurry of the West Midlands. And so we had a couple of Dexies and one of the specials and somebody joked it was like the humble pie of the new wave. Wasn't Mick Jones in it at some point too? Well, yes, he was forming Big Audio Dynamite and um, he said he'd got a lot of tunes and a lot of lyrics but he said he had only got three or four vocal melodies and he kept using the same ones over and over. And could we come up with some ideas for melodies for the lyrics he'd already got? And in return, he'd play guitar on any of the songs on our record that he liked. And so he played on, I think, about seven, six or seven. So the idea wasn't that he would be in general public as a third songwriter. The idea was that he was still doing big audio dynamite. And you yes, guys kind of. As far as I understood, he got this idea of big audio dynamite. I think Roger was trying to convince him to join the band, but it didn't seem feasible to me. Uh, did you come up with melodies on that first big audio dynamite? Record? We did, yes. And I, I hear them now. If I ever listen to that album, I'm like, oh, that's, that's one of my la la la's. La 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 la. Um, Which songs? I don't remember now. I'd have to go and listen to them. But um, it was a great weekend, and uh, the studio they had was right opposite uh, a slightly industrial soccer pitch, uh, and so we would play for a couple of hours and. Uh, they had some very fit rasters involved in big audio dynamite. And so we would play football and then come back up and la, la, la some more. And uh, it was great. Really lovely. Overall, did you enjoy the general public experience? Do you feel about those songs the way you feel about the songs from the beat? Some of them, yes. Me and Roger kind of went our different ways during general public in a way. Uh, he became more and more enamoured of programmed tracks 
uh, with synthesizers built up over numerous tracks, all played with one finger until you built up this huge pattern, syncopated pattern. And I liked them, but it wasn't really my cup of tea. I like organic music uh, that follows the flow of a heartbeat and an acoustic guitar. And the lyrics can stretch the tempo or condense the tempo. Uh, so the song would be orchestrated rather than programmed. So for a little while, the two styles uh, helped each other a bit. Uh, but then eventually, Roger's demos would arrive and they were complete works. They were already done. Vocals, harmonies, percussion, the lot. And it used to be I would get sort of semi-finished demos and he'd say, yeah, have a listen to this, see what you can do with this. And I'd write some suggestions down and we'd try different ideas. And I was quite good with his lyrics and saying, well, that's your hook line there, isn't it? That's that's the hook line. That This is the best bit here. Often his songs would just be a stream of consciousness. It would only say the title. Well, the hook line wouldn't be one. It would just be the title of the song. But it wouldn't say the title of the song in the song. So I kind of, the first general public album, I had quite a lot of leeway and uh, Brian Geising the songs together, cut and paste. Here's your chorus, isn't it? You know, sing that bit again, that's good. And, uh, and it seemed to go okay. But uh, as the process went on, uh, Roger wanted to uh, have a more complete vision of it. Although, bless his heart, he would still give me the cassettes. And he'd say, have a listen to this, see what you can do. And I'd have a listen and I'd write the lists and I'd go back and I'd tell him and he'd go, ah, I really like that bit though. Well, okay, we'll leave that then. Uh, what about this bit? We could go like, oh, really? Oh, no, I really like that bit though. Yeah, okay. But after a while, he'd say, well, have a listen and tell me what you can do. And I'd say, well, I already know what I can do. I can tell you if I like it or not. And that's it. There isn't anything to do, it's done. And there's no space, you know. There's, you've got 42 tracks going on a demo. Right. <laughs> was there anything he was adding to your songs at the same time, or were you, were you coming in with yours pretty complete also? Uh, Roger took it upon himself to be my uh, rhythm expert. He sometimes thought that the, he had a much better idea of what would be a danceable beat for the song, but it sometimes wasn't exactly the beat that the song had been written to. And sometimes I didn't think he thought he saw the subtlety in it. Uh, come Again was written in 12 A's. Diggly, 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 come again, diggly, diggly. Well, a kind of gospel thing. But he thought it sounded better as a 4-4 rock pop. Boom, 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 boom. And you could make it fit. You had to square up the lyrics a bit. You couldn't be as lyrical. Uh, I didn't think it was anywhere near as good, but the rest of the band then chimed in as though they had a vote. No, I think that one's better, Dave. Be honest with you. That's all I didn't really ask. But anyway, it was done. And so Come Again was done. And I, I don't think it, it was okay, but it never really reached the promise that the song could have done because I think the drums were oversimplified for the song. And there was another one on that record. The same thing happened on uh, Too Much or Nothing. 
which I'd sort of thought was a kind of all night long, a kind of shuffling disco, as it were. And that has again got turned into a boom, ka, boom, ka, boom, ka, boom, boom, ka, boom, ka. It was all right. So you sound more danceable, actually. Mm? Your versions sound more danceable. It was. A lot more danceable in both songs. Both of them would have been a lot better with the, the rhythm following the lyrics. But we were this kind of weird partnership and I was the senior partner. So I think in certain areas, Roger felt the need to put his foot down and he, he knew about the drums. Just trust me, Dave. And so I did and it was a mistake, really. Um, but not really long after that, uh, Roger had been very, very keen on making a solo record. He wouldn't shut up about it as we were making the second general public record because the record company hadn't really green lit as many songs as he'd hoped. He still had quite a lot of songs on the record and a couple of them were a bit weak, I thought, but uh, there weren't enough for him. So he wanted to do this solo record and he kept just going on and 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 on about it until eventually I relented and said, yeah, you should do it. Okay, great. I don't want to split up the group. I said, well, you just did. So that was kind of the end of that, really, until we had another go in the 90s. Right. And I'll Take You There became a huge... Thanks for the movie Threesome. Yes. Yes, how odd is that? I was working at Greenpeace and this guy phoned me up and said he'd just got a job as a, a music supervisor and would I be interested in putting general public together to cover a song for a film that was having some trouble because it was contentious and so they were going to try and make a, a hit record soundtrack to bring that out before the movie and try and make the movie a hit before anybody saw it and found out <laughs> that it was about a, a gay college triangle. And um, and so they had a huge budget. And we were given a choice of about 20 songs, and um, but they particularly had asked for Stuck in the Middle with You, which I thought was a bit overt. And But I'll Take You There was on the list. And um, I like that song because I always thought it had been written on the top of a, a Jamaican instrumental called... The Liquidator. The Liquidator by Harry J and the All-Stars. Same bass line, anyway. Oh, it's, uh, I, I'm just, I'm just going to interject here. The first time I heard The Liquidator, my jaw dropped because I'll Take You There is so close to the liquidator yeah. and when liquidator came out like two years earlier i think that was 69, 69 was harry it was a harry what's his name harry someone harry j and the all-stars harry j and the all-stars right and it's like that's from 69 and i'll take you there staple singers was 71 and they both start with yeah boom. pop staples went to jamaica in 1970 for a vacation I was like, there you go yeah so, so it's interesting because the general public one is like sort of somewhere I mean, this is maybe what you intended. It's like halfway yes. between the Staple Singers and the Liquidator. Exactly. Yeah, we worked some of the Liquidator back in. Right. So we put some of the uh, the melodies back in, <laughs> really just to see if we could tease the whole situation, because nobody said anything about that they might be the same song. You know, 
Well, it was funny because the first time I heard the liquidator, I already knew your version, your version of I'll take you there too. So I really was like, oh my God, <laughs> like this is, <laughs> this is I'll take you there. And there's also both versions of it. So yes, that's right. <laughs> So you had this like little extra burst of life for general public. You did another album, but was it sort of the same sort of thing? Whereas like you doing your thing and Roger doing his? Yeah, it was very Paul. It was very Lennon and McCartney that record, um, and and also sadly, uh, my dad died whilst we were making the record in England. So I had to go to England a couple of times during the recording. And then I would come back and the album, I didn't recognize it, some of the songs on the record. I was mm. like, where the hell is this going? <laughs> rub, rub it better from 1995. I managed to pull, there was a couple that were just gone really out of track. I managed to pull them back and uh, and I had a decent go at it. Uh, but it, you know, I thought it showed more promise than it delivered by the end, sadly. And then at some point, Roger's in England uh, doing like ranking Roger in the English beat you're in the U S doing your version of the beat. Yeah. Like, was that a, was that something where you guys were fine with each other doing it? Was there sort of a rivalry? Like, wait a minute, you're not the beat. I'm the beat. No, no it, it was quite friendly. Um, but it started off quite friendly. Roger had joined Everett's group, which Everett had called twist and crawl. And they'd started to get more and more shows. Uh, but Roger had called me. He said, when we get there, he said, it's called the beat. What do I do? And I said, well, I get the same thing over here. I said, I've even had it in my contracts. You know, I had a group called Bang. I said, it's got to be called Bang, nothing else. And you get to the show and it go, the English beat, general public, Dave Wakeling and Bang, sold out. So what are you going to do? Go home. <laughs> That's it. I told you you couldn't say that. Um so I said, well, eventually, I think the promoters end up ruling the world, don't they? You know, they advertise it the way they think it's going to sell. So I said, why don't you just be the beat in England then and I'll be the beat over here. And if we want to come to each other's territories, we'll do the gigs together. Well, he thought that was a great idea. But then not really very many months afterwards, uh, a local club in Malibu that I used to play regularly said, We've just had another request for a gig, but you just played here two weeks ago. I said, no, it must be some mistake. No, 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 it's here. It says the beat. And I asked them what the number was in the corner, and yes, it was from Birmingham. <laughs> it's a, a fax from Birmingham. And so not Roger so much. I think he's manager of the month uh, at yeah, I'll watch this. And uh, so he tried to come and do an American tour without me. Uh, it didn't work out, but it created some hostility. Um, but it worked out okay. I would just go to England in June and July, and Roger would not do gigs during June and July. And then the rest of the year, he was doing his gigs as the beat. Yeah, I was going to ask whether if you guys were living in the same country, whether you would have just done it together, but it sounds like maybe not. Roger always wanted to be his own boss, so I think he would have to have done this at some point, you know. He was chasing a hit single. Uh, his first go out with ranking full stop uh, was a double A-sided single with uh, Tears of a Clan and did very well. And still very popular. But ever since ranking full stop, 
his songs hadn't performed as well as he wanted them to. And instead of making him reach out and write a bit more widely, it made him narrow down more and more. Uh, he wanted everything in the song to be something he'd thought of, and he desperately wanted it to be a hit. And um, it spoiled things a little bit, I think, because uh, you can make your ideas a lot better if you get one or two good ideas from somebody else. It can be the spice or the salt that uh, gives it uh, more definition. And I thought Roger's songwriting uh, was, was similar even after we stopped working together. But then he did, when he made an album, he got a producer in who he wrote with, and I could tell the difference immediately that there was a... It wasn't exactly where you'd expect a Roger song to go to. Uh, and so I thought it was a good idea. Thank heavens, at least, the last time we met, I went round his house. Uh, we had a fantastic... Uh, time we had a lot of laughs and uh, shared a few home truths but um it was a, a really lovely visit he always used to tease me if i got drunk uh, he didn't drink so much um but he showed me a video of a tv show he'd done in russia and they'd done a rehearsal and then they they'd been given a bottle of vodka on ice in the dressing room and he thought as it was russia he might as well try it and <laughs> And this TV show, he obviously is only just vaguely aware he's on stage at all. <laughs> and he's toasting along with these Russian artists and just hoping it can get to the end. Eventually they take the mic off him and the camera leaves. <laughs> we were just howling. He said, oh, I thought you'd like this one, Dave. <laughs> this would be one you could have done. <laughs> so, so was he ill already the last time you visited with him? He had been ill for two or three years, by my opinion, and I had asked him each time I saw him. And I only got to see him once a year, whereas everybody else saw him regularly. And two years running, he looked worse. And I, in the car, just the two of us, I asked him if he'd ever had his thyroid checked because he'd lost what seemed an enormous amount of weight and was wearing baggy clothes to cover it up. And so I asked him if he'd had his thyroid checked and he said, no, no, he said, I'm fine. He said, I'm, I feel really good. He said, I've just been working out too much and I haven't been eating. And I said, are you sure? Yeah, yeah, no, I'm fine. Well, men in England don't go to the doctors very much. We usually try and find a reason to say why we're okay. And black guys even a bit more so than white guys. So I offered to go with him. I said, if you're nervous, I said, I'll go with you. I said, it's not, it's only a blood test. I said, it's a thyroid test. And they they can tell us, but you look kind of thin. And um, I don't know how the people around him, well, I don't know that they did miss it. It seems from a distance that it was missed and that really... Nothing happened about anything until he collapsed. And uh, they posted that he'd had a mini stroke. But just even from the scant details they'd posted, it, it didn't didn't match a mini stroke. And, uh, and it turned out it wasn't. It was uh, lung cancer that had spread to the brain. And um, 
one of the brain tumours had uh, ruptured a, an artery, mm. which had caused him to collapse. But he woke up not long afterwards, uh, which is why they thought it was a mini stroke. But it wasn't. It was a lot more serious than that. And uh, had he been diagnosed earlier, had he been in America, there's nothing that he had that isn't curable or manageable nowadays if it's caught in time, you know. But um, it was it had already spread from his lungs to his brain before he, he knew what the nature of his illness was, you know. But how he managed to look as ill as he did and carry on and... Uh, Nobody around him do anything about it. I don't know. But the English can be that way. Yeah. It was not my place, you know. Uh, excuse me, I don't like to say anything, but are you dying? You know, we don't, <laughs> don't tend to say it. So, no, it was very sad. I mean, I was very sad when I heard it, and I, you know, I didn't know. I was shocked. Was and everything, but he was, I what, 50-something, 50, 50 right? I mean. 58, I believe, yeah, 57, 58. And the baby of the band, and... By far away, apparently the fittest, you know, he used to roll a blade everywhere and still had a six-pack and uh, was never overweight or anything like that. Um, was still a pescatarian. And um, and he seemed to think he was healthier than everybody else, and we kind of agreed. <laughs> so that was a shock. That was a big surprise. Well, and Everett died 2021. Andy Cox and... David Steele are still around. Are are you in touch with either of them, or are they in touch with each yes. other at this point? Yeah, we, we are in touch a lot. Um, sad, isn't it, that it's the three black members of the band that are dead and the three white ones are alive, so differences in healthcare opportunities, perhaps, or, you know, who knows what it is. With Saxer, it was understandable. I mean, he was in his 90s, so... Uh, with Roger, it was a complete shock. And with Everett, it all just happened so quickly that it was a shock. But then again, something that he it turns out he'd had for years, um, suffering from indigestion and stuff like that, um, that had become chronic and had turned into uh, Barrett's syndrome uh, the type of cancer that affects where the esophagus meets the stomach. And the stomach tries to make cells that the acid won't affect so badly, and those cells migrate outside of the stomach up the esophagus where they're not really able to compete, and they become cancerous quite often, uh, these, these cells. I'm not exactly sure, but something like that. And um, if it's been going on for a long time, often there's very little can be done by the time it's diagnosed as uh, Bartlett syndrome or something like that it's called. And so um, we didn't really know he was unwell. And then he was unwell for a few weeks. Uh, then he seemed to be improving and then they said they were going to let him out of the hospital, and they he died the next day in the chair. Uh, mind you, this is from thousands of miles away, this news, so 
maybe they let him out because they knew he was going to pass. I don't know. But I think it was a surprise because people had made plans to see him that week. They had a number of things they were going to try and get done and uh, had made plans to meet up and, uh, and he just died the next morning. So I think it took everybody a little bit by surprise. Did all of the sad news kind of bring the rest of you together a little bit more or were you already... A little bit, yeah, I think so. I think it did. Uh, me and Andy uh, talked for many hours on the phone the night Roger died, which was sweet. Um, and me and David have spoken more in the last 12 months probably than we have in the 10 years leading up to that. Uh, and especially as we've just done this new record deal with Rhino, which took a lot of... Uh, finessing but we got there in the end and it, it seems like a really good deal there had been some thoughts and moves about selling the catalog uh both of which stumbled uh, to some degree around the deaths of roger and everett made the deals get delayed for so many months that the deals weren't really still there by the time everybody had got the will done and the executors and the world had moved on. We were going to sell to Hypnosis. Then Hypnosis got took over by BlackRock. BlackRock told Hypnosis they were paying too much money for Merck's favourite records, <laughs> which was true. So we got cut out of the deal at that point. Um, but in a way, to be honest, I'm glad. I, 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 I would have gone along and sold the catalogue with the rest of the boys if they wanted to. Uh for me, it's still an ongoing thing. I still two right. other songs, um, and so it didn't really seem like the right time to sell everything up. But I would have gone along with it for the, the rest of the band if it was really what they wanted. Uh, but I wasn't so keen on selling the publishing, and uh, and that seemed to be a hold-up. We tried to sell to Concord, and... and they didn't seem interested unless I sold. They said it was okay to start with, but then when we got to the end, they were making every move that I kind of had to sell my publishing as well, which I didn't want to do. And so oh, that threw to. It's cool that Rhino's doing this Black Friday uh, record store day release of I Just Can't Stop It with extra live tracks and. You have uh, you know different singles mixes and dub mixes of some of the songs, and uh, certainly hearing you guys playing this stuff live is very cool too. You know, it's a kind mm -hmm. of extra energy. To I it. haven't heard it at all yet. I'm I'm waiting. I can't wait to hear the vinyl. See how that comes out. Uh, it does make a difference. It always did, and uh, I'm shocked but not surprised that um, now vinyl seems to be selling more than CDs. People absolutely. Have see the vinyl or streaming and the CD seems to have, I don't even know if some records even come out as CDs anymore. Isn't that remarkable? So I went from vinyl to the cassette to the CD and back to vinyl. And when you're playing your shows, what is the audience like? Is it people who had seen you back in the day or do you also have like a sort of new generation of people who really like this music and have discovered it more recently? There's different sets of people. And I can more or less tell who they are now. There's still quite a lot of original fans, many of whom were fans whilst they were at college. So there's a college music vibe about them. 
Then there's general public fans who became English beat fans afterwards. Uh, and they're a bit more the 80s uh, rather than the indie college scene. And then you've got a couple of subsequent generations of younger people who came, uh, if we were, say, playing a show with Rancid or came to watch us because no doubt said we were an influence. And, uh, and they're in their 40s now, but they used to be our young fans. And then you've got people in their 20s into their 30s who are often the kids of the first set or their friends or their parents brought them to a show and they really liked it. Now they come with the friends. So we often see people from 20 to 60 along the front line dancing in their own various styles. And the nice thing about it is they don't even seem to notice. Whereas for a lot of things you go to in America, it's kind of age specified, isn't it? You know, you go to a certain place, it's for that age group and they do this. Um, so I kind of like that we've got a, a wider audience demograph now. And, and you what I like particularly is how multi-ethnic it is. All over the country, it used to be just the coasts, but now it's everywhere. Uh, white, Hispanic, Asian, black, and nobody notices. The whole night, nobody notices. Which I think is great, which was the kind of the two-tone dream back in the first early days in the 1970s. That was the dream. and um, But oddly enough, when I go to play in England now, it's 90% old, bald, white blokes. <laughs> but they all act like they're skinheads now, even if they weren't skinheads back in the day. Everybody's a skinhead now. You can look out, it's just a sea of bald heads. And they, um, they're like me, you know, they're getting older. They, they can't dance 90 minutes full, full pelt. So you see them dancing in the crowd and their arms are going like crazy. When you home in and have a good look and you see their feet aren't moving at all. They're just dancing with their arms. Come on, Dave, they say, come on, pick it up, pick it up. What do you get out of doing these shows now? It keeps me fit. That's that's a definite thing. I, I feel much healthier whilst I'm touring than when I'm lounging and languishing at home. So it's, it's great exercise. Singing is still one of my favourite things to do. And... Even though the rest of me is a bit battle-weary, uh, my voice has stayed in great shape. I'm not quite sure why. Uh, a few years ago, I moved to a, a, an ear piece that I hear my vocals in my left ear as I'm singing instead of just at the monitor speakers in front. And it means I don't have to sing as hard. I can sing more like I would in the studio, uh, crooning rather than belting. And so I don't get sore throats like I used to. Uh, I don't have to struggle to make notes as I often used to, even in the early years. Now I seem to have complete mastery over it. It's just hard to stay awake at my age. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you think you and David and Andy would ever play together again? Oh, I doubt it. Uh, I doubt it. Um I don't think David and Andy see each other or speak to each other very much at all. Uh, I think I might speak to them more than they speak to each other. 
um, the same as general public or my spats with Roger. I don't think everything finished as beautiful as it could have done with the Farnham Cannibals. Um, I did speak to Andy about it. He came to a show in London two or three years ago, but I think he'd had a half a glass of beer and was a bit overexcited because I said, come on. I said, come and get your guitar just for a couple of weeks. Oh, I know it would be exciting, wouldn't it? Come on, Andy. I said, I knew he wasn't going to. <laughs> Did you like those Fine Young Cannibals records? Some of them I liked very much. Um, some of them I thought were trying a bit too hard. Now, in retrospect, they sound like they were trying a bit too hard, a bit much. They sound a bit dated for having sounded as modern or modern as they did. My first reaction was just to be entirely jealous because it's not a great feeling to leave a band and then your bass player and your guitarist get somebody else in and go to number one on the singles chart in 17 countries on the same Tuesday. Not great, you know. Uh, so I used to be sarcastic about it, I would say. I used to say, well, you know, when it comes down to singers, I prefer Al Green to Al Jolson. <laughs> uh, just trying to be sarcastic. But it did no good. I would go out to nightclubs and be dancing, and I'd be on the middle of the dance floor, fantastic, dance away the days, enjoying myself, and the DJ would see it and do it on purpose. <laughs> and and they'd watch from the DJ booth to see how it would affect me. Would I dance or would I storm off or something? But I would do both. I would dance till the end of the song, then storm off and leave the club. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> Green round the edges. <laughs> so you got over that eventually. Maybe. No, no, not really. Look at me. I'm still going on about it. It'll, it'll be one of the last things I think about. I'll, I'll be doing Al Jolson impersonations <laughs> as I die. Great to talk to you. Thanks. It's been, it's been a pleasure listening to you over many, many years and now getting to talk to you about all this stuff. So thank you so much. A lovely chat. Thank you very much. Have a good Great. one. That's all for episode 109 of Carol Pop. Thanks so much to Dave Wakeling for taking us back through some of the greatest music of the New Wave era. Rhino Records' expanded edition of the English Beats' I Just Can't Stop It, which includes an extra LP of alternate versions and live performances, will be available at your neighborhood record store on Record Store Day, Black Friday. And Wakeling's version of the English Beat is currently on tour, with shows November 16th at City Winery Philadelphia, November 21st and 22nd at City Winery Boston, November 24th and 25th at City Winery New York, and other dates in Fairfield, Connecticut, Pittsburgh, and Milwaukee before a two-night stand at City Winery Chicago on December 3rd and 4th. Go to EnglishBeat.net for more information about shows and the band. Follow Dave Wakeling on Twitter at Dave underscore Wakeling and The English Beat on Instagram at The English Beat. One word. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swake, who, when it comes to excellence, he just can't stop it. I'm Mark Carroll. Please follow Carol Pop on Twitter and Instagram at Carol Popcast. And you can follow me as well at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Also, visit carolpop.com where you can support this podcast and enter your email address so you'll hear about upcoming events and episodes. Please share this episode, subscribe, tell your friends, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks. Thanks.